Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Passport to Murder Babylon Brooks Breathtaking Mountain Views The Endless Sounds of Nature That's what comes to mind for most of us when we think about national parks like the Grand Canyon and Acadia National Park in Maine. But these wonderful and pristine escapes have a dark side as well. They are perfect places to commit a murder. Join me as I speak with nature writer and friend Randy Minotaur as we delve into her series of books on death in national parks, many by murder. So, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Murder Most Foul. Today, our subject matter is interesting as always, but it's a little different. Unlike a lot of the other podcasts, it's not a single case or a serial killer case. It is murder, uh, but it, it or a single book. It is a group of, of books, a group of stories that focus on murder in our wonderful national park system. So, uh, and that covers the entire country. So I thought that was fun. Other side of this in the uh, effort of full disclosure, our guest today is a very good friend of mine. Uh, she and her husband are both very good friends of mine. In fact, I was the best man at their wedding. So we'll get that out of the way. So welcome. Our authoress today is Randy Minotaur. Welcome, Randy. Thanks so much, Jim. I'm delighted to be talking with you. All right. As I, uh, because I've known you and have followed your your literary career, which uh, came out of a birth of a marketing career, um, you did a lot of books, a lot of nature type of books, nature walks, interesting, uh, you know, ghost things in in in, in uh, parks or places. And your husband Nick, my friend Nick, is an amazing. Uh, photographer, so we will draw everyone by the end to your site so they can uh, look at these books and, of course, get them Barnes and Noble and, and, and Amazon and all that. But so the nature part of it is stunning, and the information that you impart is 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 always I, I enjoy them. But you moved from that. Tell me what was there one particular thing because as we're going to go forward, this there's, it's more than one story one national park, it's sort of this concept of murder or homicide, if you will. Uh, some of them, we don't know how the people ended to their, to their doom, but uh, murder or, or, or homicide in national parks. Well, you know, it's really, it's a little broader than that. The, the books, which, which have become known as the death books, uh, c- cover all of the things that can happen to you in a national park. So falling off a mountain, getting buried in an avalanche, uh, being eaten by an alligator, whatever it may be, that's all in there. Uh, but in particular, and the, the thing that I find per- personally find the most fascinating uh, are the homicides the people who think that they can get away with a crime because they're in the wilderness. And as we all saw with, with Gabby Petito's murder uh, last year, uh, it's, you don't get away with it. The whole world is looking at you, literally the whole world, when, uh, when you pull off something like this or attempt to in a, in something as famous as a national park. So uh 
so I, I sort of came to this because I kept stumbling across these cases uh, as I would, uh, as I worked on books about hiking in New York State. We have a beautiful book about hiking waterfalls in New York. Um, and, you know, you always hear about, well, there was the guy who took a fall and, you know, went over Niagara Falls in a barrel or somebody pushed him. Uh, and the more the more you get into those, the more you find that almost every national park that has a has a precipice of some kind has somebody who's tried to push their spouse or a significant other over over that precipice to try to collect the insurance money. So that was the beginning, um, you know, the the process of just wanting to get rid of somebody uh, for your own gain, uh, but. You know, the the more the more I researched, the more I found uh, more and more cases like this that are really pretty smarmy, pretty horrible, and remarkably how few people get away with it with doing something like this. Well, seemingly in my business, finding cases that are they're not interesting, of course, unsolved, but uh, that. Not only do most of the murders uh, get solved, but the, the perp is either caught or you know identified after they, they have passed. Now, in preparation for this, you did uh, 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 put me onto a couple of specific books. Like you said, you have the murder series. The one was, is it death or murder at uh, Acadia? It's death in Acadia. In Acadia. It, and that's a beautiful. Yeah. Tell us about where that is and the park itself. Sure. Uh, Acadia National Park is on the coast, uh, the rocky coast of Maine. Uh, it's right at the point where um, the, the, the line goes right through the middle of the park that the southern half has a beach. The northern half is, is just rocks and precipices and, and high cliffs. And it's gorgeous, just gorgeous, uh, right on the Atlantic Ocean on Mount Desert Island. And uh, it used to be the playground of the idle rich, you know, the, the Astors and the Rockefellers and, and many, many others went up there to play, uh, do something that they called rusticating, uh, <laughs> that only, only the, the very, very rich can come up with a term like that for, you know, recreation. So, uh, you know, over time, the, you know, the, the rich moved out uh, and the rest of us, the rabble, <laughs> came and, and it became a national park in the 1940s. And, you know, generally uh, in, in Acadia, when people die in Acadia, and it's really rare, pretty rare there, it's usually because they're standing on the beach as a big wave comes in and they get swept out into the ocean. Uh, but there's one case in particular where uh, a, a lovely, uh, a lovely young couple uh, made a, made a, you know, walked up to uh, the top of Otter Cliff supposedly to look for sea otters. Now there are no sea otters in Maine, uh, but they went up there to look for them. And lo and behold, uh, Kathy Frost Larson, who had married Dennis Larson just a month before, uh, took an 80 foot fall and did not survive. And that's sad. Someone has died and, 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 and we're going to grieve that. And hmm, but that wasn't the end of the story, was it? No, uh, that's the thing. The park formed a, a commission of people to look into this, really to decide how how the park could avoid such a tragedy again. You know, guardrails and and signage and things like that at the top of Otter Cliff, which overlooks the Atlantic Ocean and is nothing but rock. It, it, if you fall, you, nobody survives. So uh, they started looking at that, and then some questions started to arise. Uh, what was Kathy Frost Larson, who was deathly afraid of heights, doing at the top of this cliff? What, uh, why did it take a while for Dennis to get anybody to look for her? Um, you know, the, these, these questions started to come up. And the more the 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 more that the police and the detectives looked at Dennis Larson, the more dirt they discovered on him. 
Well, that's why, again, the story is, uh, is the title of this chapter of the book is called The Thickest of Plots, Death by Murder. And uh, it is fascinating how this could have very easily, uh, you know, nobody was famous or whatever, very easily just another sad thing. But good, good for the cops. They continued to look. And, and what did they find out about this gentleman? His, well, his past. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's it's very interesting. Dennis Larson came to Maine, to Millinocket, Maine, uh, way up at the top of Maine, uh, from Montana, where he had been married before. Uh, he was married to uh, a woman named Leslie Gale Reynolds. And in 1975, the two of them went mushroom hunting on Prickly Pear Creek in Montana near Great Falls. And they, she slipped. Uh, there had been a lot of rain and she, she slipped into the creek and the creek carried her right out into the Missouri River and she drowned and she disappeared. Her body just vanished, was never found, despite some pretty aggressive looking for this body. Um, Dennis said that the current took her into, you know, into the river and, and he was devastated and so on and so forth. Um, and then very interestingly, a few days after her death, she called her, he, he called her life insurance company and filed a claim and got $20,000. Now, th this, is, this is not in itself you know, necessarily suspicious. That's why we all have life insurance. But it may have set something off in his own head about, huh, huh, insurance. How oh, here's a way for people to, to make money. But, you know, there was an investigator out there, a Richard Hammerbacher, who said, the creek isn't that deep. The creek isn't that wide. You know, in low water, you can wade across this creek and the water's right around your ankles. How did she drown? How did she get swept away in what was only maybe knee deep water? So he kept looking into this. Meanwhile, Dennis went on with his life. He married Janine Whitney, uh, another, another woman in Montana. But fairly soon after they were married, their marriage started to have real problems that they had a lot of financial trouble and he, he was really struggling and she finally up and left him and divorced him. Well, he was still in love with Janine. So he decided that he was going to look for a way to make more money so that he could fix their problems and they could get back together. So he moved to Millinocket, Maine to be a construction electrician in an area that was, uh, well, if you've been up in Millinocket, you know that there's not a lot going on up there except lumber. Uh, so, you know, there wasn't, he wasn't going to really seek his fortune, but while he was up there, he placed a series of personal ads online looking for what he called a lasting relationship. Uh, he wanted a woman between the ages of 20 and 35 who liked the outdoors. That's what his ad said. And several women responded. And within days of dating these women, he started pushing them to get married. Uh, wanted to get married right away, as soon as possible, really wanted a lasting relationship with them. And most of them said, what are you nuts? I've known you three weeks and you want to marry me? And they, they split. But Kathy Frost was 26 years old. All of her friends were already married and she was vulnerable. And she found this whole whirlwind romance to be very, very romantic and she married Dennis Larson. Well, meanwhile, Dennis kept in touch with Janine, his second wife, and they also had a child together. So there was that, that you know, complication as well. And he kept saying to her, you know, you'll see, I'm going to get back. I'm going to come back. We're going to get back together. I'm, gonna, I'm about to come into a lot of money. Well, if that isn't a you know, a giveaway. It's a smoking gun, it I think, in any uh, any situation. Right, exactly. So, um, so they had Kathy married Dennis. Uh, they had this this you know very quick wedding uh, in her living room, and then they moved into an apartment together and started their life together. And after about a month. Uh, they were married September 20th, 1987, and uh, on October 11th, uh, he pushed her to go 
to, to go to Acadia and to go out to Otter Cliff and to see the view from Otter Cliff. So to speak. Yes. And well, she saw the view. She saw the view in a way most of us never will. And unfortunately, she did not survive the, the ordeal. So, but shortly after, after her death, as a, a, a police investigator, a detective named Jeffrey Harmon started to really look at Dennis and started to uncover all of these things about his background. Um, so, he found, um, found yet another insurance fraud scheme that Dennis had pulled off, where he had uh, fabricated a burglary and managed to receive $5,000 for property that he said was stolen that may never have existed. So he already had kind of a rap sheet going for this kind of stuff. So um, he was arrested for that, for that burglary fraud uh, in February 1988. And at that point, the, uh, the, you know, the Montana police had him in custody and they knew that Jeffrey Harmon had continued to look into what he was up to in Maine. So he, uh, Harmon flew out to Montana and began interrogating Dennis and interviewed him for six hours and got him nearly to confess outright that he had pushed Kathy off of this cliff. Well, that's that part uh, does uh, interest me. And again, as I was reading through the story, is that there really, obviously, there was no, you can't say, well, this person was pushed unless they're hit over the head uh, or or the they'd had to go over a railing or something. I mean, it was pretty easy to do what he did. So I, you know, I wasn't in the interrogation, neither were you, but it's amazing what the police, whatever side, I mean, obviously the stuff in insurance, whatever they figured out were buttons to push. I was amazed that as far as I could tell, that was going to be the only way everything else insurance was circa that he was the last one to see her, all that circumstantial. So I, 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 maybe I missed it. Did he get was he able to actuate uh, a insurance policy against her before he killed? Okay, go. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you for, for bringing that up because that's the piece that I left out of this. The day after Dennis and Kathy got married, they went to Sears and they bought a bed. And while they were there, oh, look, there's a booth where we can buy insurance. And they went over to the booth and right away, Dennis bought an insurance policy on himself for $300,000 and one on Kathy for $200,000 with, with a double indemnity clause. Then that meant that if she died in an accident, he would get $400,000. So here's, you know... This is this is that smoking gun that we're. That's pretty for. smoking. That's, that's yeah. yeah, yeah. And certainly, just about a month after Kathy's death, he went ahead and he filed filed the claim for that insurance, and that set off all kinds of alarm bells, and uh, including the ones with the main police. So that's that's where they all started to understand what had really gone down. So, uh, no, he never got the money. <laughs> by the time the money would have come through, by the time Allstate was done investigating this, he was already in prison and awaiting trial. So this is a good thing. But yes, uh, that, that is the thing that there is when somebody falls off a ledge like this uh, onto the rocks below, there's no way to tell if somebody pushed him from behind. That's just not a thing. Nor they jump or whatever right. people jump. But um, it's but that's, that's why it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, a crime. And I, I, I do think it's interesting, certainly whenever a lot of the um, a murder cases, serial serial killers don't have to be a park, a national park, but the bodies eventually they drag them out into lovely wooded areas. But in this case, you know, along a, a trail that's more, but then you go up a little higher if you want to and. And he, it's sad that he uh, had it all planned out uh, from the moment he started placing these ads. He, it was not to find a partner. 
It was to find someone to push off a cliff. That's right. That's, exactly. that's pretty cold. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That that was his plan all along. And, you know, in the in the interrogation, he actually said uh, to Detective Harmon that he felt bad about it because it because it hurt a lady is how he put it. He heard a He heard a nice lady. And well, you know, I wish he'd thought about that before he did it. <laughs> well, and for or her, and now you say so. I forget was he convicted like of second degree or something or manslaughter? And yes, uh, Dennis, you know, like like so many other you know remarkably arrogant uh, criminals, uh, Dennis waived the right to uh, a jury trial and decided that he'd let the judge decide. And he thought he could plead with the judge and convince him that, that somehow he was not guilty of this very obvious murder and insurance fraud. Well, the judge deliberated just long enough to write his decision, <laughs> found the guy guilty and put him away for life. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, I have been in um, national parks, a couple, Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them are very obvious, but, but some are little squares of land. Uh, you and Nick have technically have seen how or, you know, gotten stamped in how many places? Yeah, we, we have the National Parks Passport and we have been to 345 of the 424 National Parks. There you go. In there 49 go. states. God bless. So one of the places, obviously, that I find very intriguing uh, because of it, it's just it, it reeks of of uh, intrigue and spookiness is the Everglades. Yes. And I know that you're working. You uh, told me when I contacted you earlier about sitting with us that you have a book that's not out yet. That is also uh, murder in the and, and but in the Everglades. And there I'm assuming part of the Everglades is a park and part of it isn't. And, and, and that's right. But uh, the coverage, obviously, of the stories that you do are are uh, instances in in the Everglades. So give my audience and we've seen, you know, uh, movies and documentaries, but you have actually been with Nick and you've been down there. Uh, have you gone like uh, on, on a boat? Uh, tell, some of it is I, as we look at it, we think of it as as a lot of reeds and trees, but it's also like, a, a you know, thick, deep water in places, islands and other places. So give us a little sort of lay of the land before we get into an interesting uh, sort of uh, group of Billy the Kid guys who are wandering around the Everglades. Yes. Uh, well, the, the Everglades actually start at uh, around Kissimmee, which is south of Orlando, and go all the way down to the, to the bottom of Florida. And uh, the you know people say it's a swamp. It actually is not a swamp because the water is moving. Uh, it, it's the better the better description of it is in Marjorie Stoneman Douglas's description the, the, of it as a river of grass. It's very slow moving water. It it uh, carries all of the impurities out of South Florida and into the ocean, and then replenishes itself with rains and and you know, watershed and so on, and is a, a unique ecosystem like nowhere else in, in the world. And uh, when it was untouched and, you know, lovely and before the water system that, that the state of Florida installed to try to turn it all into farmland, uh, it absolutely regulated itself and it maintained this enormous uh, basis of wildlife. Uh, you know, millions, literally millions of long-legged wading birds, alligators, uh, raccoons, coyotes, all, all, you know, all the things that you would expect to find in a wilderness um, with the uniqueness of being, you know, this, this subtropical area so that you get crocodiles as well as alligators. It's the only place in the world where you get both. So it's a it's a lovely place, but it's very mysterious uh, because it's grass that is higher than your head. Sawgrass, in particular, uh, there's a. If <laughs> I'm not old enough to remember this firsthand, but I found it online, uh, there was a series, a, a TV series called Everglades, uh, back 1961, and the, the with a sheriff who ran around on his airboat, and uh, the the opening always talked about the deadly sawgrass. Sawgrass is not going to kill you. Sawgrass is going to give you a paper cut. 
So this is not something to fear. Um, alligators, on the other hand, that that's a that's something that you should be afraid of. That it's healthy to be afraid of them. Um, but uh, it's a very it is a mysterious area. Uh, it's water that in some places is ankle deep, in some places you can fall in and disappear. It's um, people think there's quicksand there. There's no quicksand in the Everglades, <laughs> but there is mud that the. In fact, they just call it muck, not even mud, that will suck your feet in and hold you fast so that you feel like it's quicksand, though you're not going to sink any further. There's bedrock under there. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating place. Uh, lots of water obviously. And you can, uh, you can take an airboat through there. It's the, the airboat capital of the world. In fact, uh, you can take regular kinds of boats that, that don't have a centerboard or a keel. Uh, so there's nothing to get stuck on the reeds and you can get back into the, into the back country. Uh, but you have, you really need to go with a guide uh, or you could be lost in there you know, the, the maps are good, but they're not good enough if you're not good with a compass. And well, you can works, get lost in there. That works uh, uh, for people who are using it, obviously, as a place to uh, escape the long arm of the law. Right. Uh, and in, in your book, which you I, I just feel so uh, honored that I have before publication, uh, uh, got to look and the, the title of the whole book is uh, Murder in the Everglades. Death, Death in the Everglades. Death in the Everglades. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, chapters is the murderous king of the Everglades. Um, now, this is interesting because all the stuff you talked about, the airboats and stuff like that and organization and charting and all that. Uh, long before that, because this is a, a, a turn of the century, the last one, like in the 1912, 1910s. So tell us about the king, the murder <laughs> king of the Everglades. Boy, you know, there are so many legends of about John Ashley and the Ashley gang. These guys made Bonnie and Clyde look like my parents. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde were just having fun. These guys were serious. These are the guys that held up trains. Uh, they robbed banks. They uh, and, and the best thing about them is that they robbed from the rich and they gave to the poor so they had so people were really ambivalent about the ashley gang if they showed up to rob your bank well it might mean that some poor slob in the ever you know deep in the everglades who's living off of his tin can of beans might be getting a few bucks to help him along that night so you know they they had they had their fans they had their haters it was it was complicated, but John Ashley in particular uh, was a he was a hunter. He was a trapper as a young man. Uh, he worked on on building the railroads. He did all kinds of things like that. He and his brothers, and they they lived right on the edge of the Everglades and got to know the Everglades themselves really well. And they went in there to trap otter pelts and uh, to to you know make a living until until commerce really started to build in the Everglades, uh, which happened around the 19-teens. So John made a fatal error uh, fairly early in his career. Uh, he decided to befriend the Seminole Indians that to this day still live in the Everglades. Um, they were, the Seminoles are very much a part of the culture in, in South Florida. So it was very common for the white folks to mix with the Seminoles and, you know, do, do things together. Uh, so it wasn't really a surprise when John Ashley showed up at a Seminole otter uh, hunting camp with uh with a bunch of booze to celebrate christmas with them it was right around christmas and so they uh you know they all got drunk together they were drunk for days apparently around the holidays um uh, and uh in the meantime one very well-known seminole uh the son of a chief uh named DeSoto tiger was uh perhaps the best trapper among them. And he had, a, he had amassed quite the collection of otter pelts that he was about to take into Miami to sell for hundreds of dollars. 
And John Ashley said, gee, can I tag a ride with you into, into Miami in your canoe? DeSoto said, well, if you must, because, you know, by after three or four days of being drunk with this guy, they were really sick of him. So it's like, okay, this will get you out of here. Sure. Get in my canoe. So they start out, you know, they start paddling out for on the way to Miami, probably 20, 25 miles away. And they get into an area where no one can see them. You know, uh, the the rest of the Seminoles see the canoe go into into the wilderness. And that was the end of that. And suddenly they hear two gunshots. And on the other end of the the big uh, area of sawgrass, they see the boat come out. And it's just John Ashley in it. And he just keeps paddling and he goes past a a dredging operation that is run by the military. And uh, they see him go by. They don't think anything of it. It's a guy in a canoe with a bunch of otter pelts. Uh, But shortly thereafter, it becomes very clear that DeSoto Tiger is no longer with him and that he has disappeared. So the Seminole go looking for him and they find his body on the bank uh, with two gunshots in him. So he's obviously been murdered. Meanwhile, John Ashley goes to Miami, trades out the pellets the the the, yeah the pelts and uh gets himself several hundred dollars or the equivalent of about twenty thousand dollars today so he he did well for himself and then he essentially went on the lamb because everybody figured out pretty quickly that he was the guy who killed desoto tiger and they start looking for him so uh so he could he he leaves the area then a year goes by, he comes back to the area, is almost immediately arrested. And the process of trying, trying to try John Ashley, uh, it becomes quite the, quite the issue to try to uh, pin this crime on him, this crime that he obviously did. Um, you know, you got to think about at the time, this is what, 1910, there, there's no there are no forensics, you know, there's no CSI, there's nobody to check fingerprints, there's nobody to match the bullets that they took out of DeSoto Tiger's body with John Ashley's gun. There's no way to do that. Um, it, you know, also, who knows if he still has the same gun anymore? They have nothing, nothing to go on as far as that goes. Uh, all they have is John Ashley's testimony versus what other people feel they saw, they think they saw. That's it. Um, the other problem, however, is that John is fairly well liked in the area. So who the heck wants to serve on that jury? So they have a real problem in even assembling a jury to, you know, that the, the, both the prosecuting and the defense attorneys keep just excusing people out of that voir dire, you know, just not wanting to have any of these people who think John's a hell of a guy on their, on their jury. So uh, it, take, it takes quite some time to finally pin this crime on him. Um, in fact, he, they try him three times, twice it's a mistrial. Uh, and the, the third time they have a jury of only 11 people because they couldn't get a 12th. And they, but they finally get him and they lock him up. And then and then the escapes begin. Well, escapes, uh, plural. Yes. Yes, exactly. There's um, and in one fairly spectacular escape, um, John just bolts. You know, he just, they, they, for some reason, I, the, you know, John is this mild, what in person, he's this mild mannered, slow talking, kind of charming guy. So when they bring him to put him in his cell at the county jail in Miami, they don't even put handcuffs on him. So, 
while the while the jailer is kind of fumbling for his keys to put him back in the cell, John bolts. You know, he just takes off over a fence, you know, out of out of the you know, out the back door, over a fence, into a waiting car, and they take off. So, you know, so they they so he gets away once um, and goes back into the Everglades where he lives. He has a camp and he trades moonshine and he makes his own and he you know works with people in the in the area and he supports himself. And every once in a while he does a crime and lots of people know where he is, but nobody goes after him. And at one point, two deputies come for him and he outsmarts them. He sits in the dark and here they think they know exactly where his camp is, but he doesn't seem to be there. And then all of a sudden they hear a voice out of the dark saying, put your guns down if you want to live through the night. And they put them down because <laughs> they can't see him, but he can see them and they know they're dead. And he tells them to tell the sheriff to stop sending thugs out to get him. And no one does. Finally, somebody outsmarts him. And the details on this are a little thin, but they finally bring John back. And that, and at that point, they have the third trial, and they convict him of killing DeSoto Tiger. And they put him back in jail. And at this point, they've got big chains that they put in front of his cell so that he can't get, he can't pull an escape. He can't get away. So they put up these big chains. And they also have chains to put up on the door. But on this one day, the jailer just doesn't think to do that. And sure enough, there's a knock on the door and the jailer goes to the door and there's Bob Ashley, who is John's brother. And Bob pulls a gun and he just often shoots the jailer. Well, the jailer's wife comes running out and grabs her gun and she goes after Bob by, by herself, which in her yelling that she's doing this brings all these other deputies out of the woodwork, wherever they were. Meanwhile, Bob has released John and they go running and they, Bob gets into a car. John goes one way. Bob goes another. Bob gets into a passing car, you know, just leaps into it and tells the guy, drive, drive. So the guy starts driving and the guy pretty much figures out right away what's going on, that this is some kind of jailbreak or some criminal. And he feigns that the car is stalling. He's like, oh, you know, now you got to think, this is like 1912. So pro probably wasn't that hard to pop the clutch and make the car stall. So, so they, you know, so he, they stall and he's, you know, he gets out of the car and he's pretending to try to fix it. And he, he buys the police enough time that they, the police come, uh, come right up against, against him, right up parallel to the car, and they start shooting at Bob, and Bob shoots back, and doesn't he just kill one of these policemen? But they also get Bob. So, so it all works out. But meanwhile, John Ashley's out again. And doing more crimes and, you know, doing his thing. And ev eventually they round, they round him up and they get him back in jail. And then he starts digging his way out with a spoon. I mean, a spoon. And after he's been in there about three months and apparently he got, he manages to get a hole big enough that he's about two feet from the, the outer wall of the jail. So he's actually making progress. And this is when they, oop, they discover that, that, that this hole is there and they transfer him for a little while. And they, they put metal down over, over the hole that he created and they put him back in the cell. And the sheriff says to him, look, I know it's your job to try to break out of here. And I know it's my job to keep you from doing that. So either I win or you win. And I know you're going to keep doing that. And I just can't 
be bothered with it, but I'm taking away your spoon. <laughs> so, so eventually John Ashley was convicted. He went up to up, you know, uptown or up upstate to the state prison. Uh, he got himself after a couple of years, he got good behavior. So he got himself out on a road gang to, you know, go out and do do good work in the in the community on a chain gang and managed to escape. No, that no, that would have never happened. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And was once again out. And that's when the Ashley gang became the most active in their careers and started started turning over trains and uh, pulling off some really big heists. And that's and they, they continued to do this until finally um, there were some hot tips that the sheriff in, uh, I think it was Cocoa Beach, uh, somewhere up further upstate, uh, got the got the word that uh, that they, they knew exactly where the Ashley gang was. And they pulled off, they, they, two sheriffs in two different counties worked together and they cornered them at a, at a, at a crossroads in, you know, deep in the forest and, you know, on, on the water, all of, all of these things, they, they uh, created a roadblock and they got them at the roadblock and lots of, lots of sheriffs and deputies surrounded them very quickly, got the four guys at that point out of the car did not frisk them, took away their big guns, but did not frisk them. They all, of course, had handguns on them. The guys pulled their, the, 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 the gang pulled their handguns, but before they could even get, you know, take aim and draw down on the, on the cops, the cops shot them all dead. And that was the end of the Ashley gang. Boy, you got to, that's quite a story. And exactly. The, and the concept that we do, like you said, Bonnie and Clyde, whatever, any of these gangs that that were caught and went out again, caught and went out again, uh, just got away from XYZ, lost a couple members, reconstituted uh, themselves. Uh, this one takes the cake in my mind. And um and how did you how did you come by it just by happenstance or because of the Everglades? I mean, what you know in your books, what it, it goes in this book, but where right. did it come to you? Well, um, what I do is I I go back into the archives of newspapers. That's my first go-to thing to do. Uh, and I, uh, I call for, you know, I start searching because all this stuff is searchable now, you know. Uh, I start searching for death, Everglades, murder, Everglades, um, you know, each year by year. And I can go back as far for some, some papers. I can go back, you know, into the 1800s. So, you know, working my way forward, all of a sudden, the, you start seeing these names come up over and over and over again. And, uh and then you know you you start piecing these stories together, and once once you find the big story, you know then you can start to start to uh, widen the search. Uh, there's a lot of library, you know, library stuff and magazine articles and thing things along those lines. And I also did uh, do the um, Florida has what's called the Sunshine Law which means that uh, where the rest of the world, the rest of the country operates on the Freedom of Information Act, Florida has 
very specific rules about how quickly they have to get back to you with information you ask for, uh, which is wonderful. So, you know, you contact the sheriff's department in a, in a specific town and there's that information and they're more than willing to actually pretty, pretty pleasant about sharing it with you. So you get court transcripts and, you know, things along those lines that are, that are really, really helpful in piecing together a good story. Well, I would call this a good story. Um, I, I, um, I'm amazed about the idiot uh, guy pushing his wife off her <laughs> off the <laughs> mountains. But, but I, as you said, the, I think it's good the myst- the mystery of a place like uh, the Everglades. Uh, we've all been, you know, into the mountains, and we've all been, you know, on hiking trails. But very few of us have. Now, when you said you have, you know, been through the Everglades, obviously with a guide, did you do a wind boat or some kind of skiff kind of thing? What did you do? We, we uh, we've been on a, a number of different boat tours. Uh, I've never done an airboat. They're just too noisy for me. You know, there's a huge propeller behind you. Um, but we have done um, small motorboats uh, with a guide into really into the back country. Um, I haven't done a canoe yet. Uh, it's certainly on the list to do that. Uh, and that's really the way to see, in particular, the adjacent 10,000 Islands National Wildlife Refuge is actually part of the Everglades National Park. And uh, there are all kinds of maps and and you know, areas set up where you can camp in the middle of the river of grass, if you like. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite stunning to get. Well, one of the things, um, and again, as I pointed out at the beginning, that the, the Everglades book is not out yet, and, but I, you gave me the full copy. And um, there's another story, which, again, we've, we've taken enough of your time. Um, when it comes out, I, of course, will have you back. But what it, it, again, gives you the idea we talked off air before you get on about a, a story that's out right now just happened. A, a barrel was found with a body in it in, in Lake Mead, uh, which is also a national park. And oddly, it's sort of crossing um, ecologic with, uh, with nature. Uh, that the only reason it was found is the water level in this lake has gone down so far. I'm sure the and they can I guess they can time they know pro- approximately when the barrel went in with the body in it that no one thought it would ever surface get right. down in the muck or whatever and it was a really this thing is huge and heavy it would stay there but it got exposed by by uh, the, the the water going down. But also you have a couple of stories at least one in here. Where again, you're talking about propellers and that people just going through, you know, fishing or hunting and coming across their their rotor c- catching a body. Oh, right. Well, somebody dumped someone. And so I'll leave that for people to read because I did read that one. It was it was fascinating. But I did feel we could probably only cover a couple of stories. And I did. I do believe at least of the ones I scanned that the murderous king of the Everglades that we just talked about. I mean, that is just fascinating and 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 silly. And, and you know, if it didn't include killing cops, it would be funny, you know, mm-hmm. as the gang who couldn't shoot straight, except it was the cops this time not not the gang so let's now all the uh, you know the pertinent uh, information of how they can reach you how they can send you emails how they can buy your books when's your neck your website would have your appearances around the world uh so why don't you share that with my listeners sure uh my my website and you can buy books directly from me uh if you like is minotaur.com which is m i n e t o r uh so that's uh that's the easiest way to reach me. You can reach me at randy at minotaur.com if, uh, if you want to get directly in touch with me. I do lots of speaking engagements and, and talking about death in the national parks is remarkably popular right now. So, uh, so I'd love to be on your schedule. And there are, and that would be listed there, of course. I, I saw it when I first, uh, the inside cover. Uh, there's about how many that are the death series? Seven. Seven, Seven that I've written. There are well, other, oh, sure. Yeah, there are other uh, books about death in the parks written by other 
uh, other authors, but uh, I have done uh, Death in Glacier National Park, Death in Zion, Death in Acadia, uh, Death in Rocky Mountain, uh, which is mostly about Long's Peak, the, the tallest mountain in, in, the, in Colorado, and uh, as well as uh, Death on Katahdin, which is the highest mountain in Maine, and Death on Mount Washington, which is the highest mountain in New Hampshire. So, uh, and both of those are on the Appalachian Trail. So. Great. Yeah. Well, I want to thank uh, my guest today and my dear friend, Randy Minotaur, uh, author uh, with her her husband, the photographer. Some again, on your website, of course, is your nature series as well. Your things that aren't spooky uh, walks and and wonderful pictures by by Nick and and uh, um, uh, nature as well as walking. But also he's a great bird photographer, a great wildlife photographer. Um, and so, uh, again, I, I, I encourage you to check those out. And um, so I'm going to say thank you. And I'm going to say say hi to Nick for me. I do ben. hope. Sorry, folks, we got to get this in since she's very busy. again. I do hope to come home to Rochester soon. Looking you guys up, I will make sure I want to check your schedule, you know, how far out in advance you have something coming up. So I can make sure that you're home when I come home. So once again, I want to thank Randy Minotaur for joining us today on Murder Most Foul. Thanks so much, Jim. So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website. The address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. (laughs) 